Good morning, everyone. So yesterday morning, I ran into a friend uh, who I've been meeting uh, with to read and discuss the Bible. I met this guy at a local county park. He was the, the caretaker there, and I struck up a conversation with him, and eventually um, I asked him if he'd want to read and study the Bible together, and he said yes. He's been very open and sympathetic to the Christian faith, which I'm really thankful for. And during our conversation yesterday, he began talking about the kind of unpleasant, honestly, the annoying uh, people experiences he's been having lately, whether it's with friends, family, work, uh, things like disloyalty, greed, lying, laziness, inconsideration, gossip, the list kind of went on. We can understand that, can't we? We experience those things ourselves oftentimes. We look at what's happening in the world or how we're dealing with difficult people in our lives and we can get disgusted and ask Jesus, when are you coming back to take care of those crazy people? That's exactly what he asked me yesterday. When's he coming back? But then we have to be reminded of Jesus' words from Mark 7 where he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evils come from within and they defile a person. No matter how good I or anyone else looks on the outside, because of sin within us, I am unclean. That's what defile means. I'm unclean and unfit to come to God on my own. The result being spiritual death and eternal condemnation from God. So you know what, friends? I'm no different than what I see happening in the world. I might just be a little bit more cleaned up on the outside. Inside, there's all kinds of things, things happening. And so we might agree with the Apostle Paul when he said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ alone is qualified and powerful to help us in our great need to deal with sin. That's what we are going to learn about this morning as we continue in our sermon series on the book of Hebrews. I just want to kind of go over where we've been so far. You'll remember that this letter is written to a group of mostly um, Jewish believers, believers in Christ, and they're experiencing persecution for their faith. And so they're struggling to know how to deal with it. Some, some of them are tempted to drift away from the things of Christ because of the persecution. And so the writer wants to urge them to remain steadfast in what they have come to believe about Jesus. And he knows that the most effective way to do this is not simply to tell them, do this, don't do that, but to magnify and exalt Jesus for all he is and for all he has done. So he gives them this mind-boggling description of who Jesus really is, creator of the world, heir of all things, the one who actually upholds the universe by the word of his power. I, let, let's just stop and think about that one for a second. 
Jesus just has to speak or even think, and the world functions. Everything you see is upheld by the power of the word of Jesus. He is the very radiance of God, the exact imprint of God's nature, meaning that he is, in fact, God himself. He is the ruling king of the universe because he's not a dead savior. He is alive and reigning, seated at the right hand of God now and forever. Over and over again, he describes how Jesus is greater than anyone or anything. He's greater than any prophet of God, greater than any created being, including the glorious angels of God. So the author tells them that they must look to Jesus. They must think of Jesus. They must remember Jesus. And in particular, that he is crowned with glory. Not merely because he's king of the universe, he is that, but he's crowned with glory because he suffered and died to save all who would believe in them, bringing many sons to glory. And we're going to see what he did to make that happen this morning. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn, turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18, it would also be on your screen. It says there, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and to deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Our Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your word this morning. May it do what we need, that we might know you better, that we might love and treasure you more, that we might follow you and make you known. Work in us, we pray, Holy Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Our main point this morning is simply this. The Son of God became a man to deal with our sin and to help us with our sin. The Son of God became a man to deal with our sin and to help us with our sin. Or to express it a little bit more fully, the eternal Son of God, who is just like the Father, also became just like us. So that he might ultimately take care of our problem of sin. And with that, in a very present and powerful way, he became a man to help us with our ongoing struggle with temptation and sin. Jesus, God the Son in human flesh, is our ultimate sin deliverer and our ever-present sin helper. 
So, our first point this morning is how Jesus ultimately deals with our sin problem. To be this ultimate sin deliverer, the eternal Son of God took on flesh and became fully and truly man. This is called the doctrine of the incarnation, which simply means to become flesh. The writer has already made reference to this in verses 5 to 10. There, Jesus is said to have been made a little lower than the angels. Just as humans are a little lower than the angels, so the Son of God became like that as well. And verse 14 is a concise biblical definition of the incarnation in that the eternal Son of God, while remaining truly and fully God, also became truly and fully man. Yeah, with one major difference, right? What is that? Without sin. Unlike us, he is without sin. Now, in early church history, false teachers came along and began to spread their own versions of who Jesus is, who they think he is. There there were some who believed that Jesus was not truly human. That he he instead only appeared to be like a man, sort of like Superman, right? Superman wasn't human. He was a Krypton person. What was, right? From Krypton? What do you call that? A Kryptonite? A Kryptonian? Something like that, right? But in this case, they they, they thought that Jesus was maybe more like a spirit or like a ghost that only looked human but wasn't really. These people were likely influenced by a philosophy that said anything made of matter or anything having to do with the human body was actually evil. And therefore, because the Son of God is absolutely holy... How how could he really take on evil human flesh? This this teaching began to creep into some of the churches. And so a number of the New Testament authors will address these in their letters to the churches. Now, we have to remember these these Hebrew Christians that we're we're, we're reading about, they're facing persecution for their faith in Christ. And, And perhaps a false teaching like this could sway them to turn from the truth that they came to believe. They they might hear, well, I haven't heard that before. And and you know, I'm I'm really, we're really having a hard time believing this Jesus stuff. Maybe he's not all that we thought he was. Maybe it would be okay to just step aside from following him. What would help them to stand firm, friends? A robust and biblically informed view of who Jesus really is. He is not just a prophet. He is not just a good teacher. He's not just a social reformer or worker of miracles. He was all that, but not merely that. And he's not only a spirit. He's not even some exalted creation. He is the everlasting God, far superior to any angel or spiritual being. And he came into this world as a real man with real bones, flesh, a real soul to identify with us and to help us in our sin. The writer wanted these believers to stand firm in their faith because of who Jesus was, both God and man. So ultimately, Jesus deals with our sin, first of all, by becoming a true man. Secondly, Jesus ultimately deals with our sins by dying. As a true man. 
Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. The children that he's speaking of here are, are simply the people that God would save through Jesus. They're referred to in verse 16 as well when they're called the, the, the seed of Abraham, the children of Abraham, the people who have come to have faith like Abraham, who've come to believe in Jesus. Those are the children. And these children are all human, right? They all have flesh and blood. And in order to save human people, the Son of God must also become human, but be perfectly righteous. One of the historic creeds of the church, the Heidelberg Catechism, explains this truth in the form of a question. Hopefully it's on your screen. There it is. Why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner could never pay for the sins of others. In other words, only a real person can pay for the sins of real people. But a sinful person can never pay for someone else's sins. A sinless man like Jesus can. So he must be truly and fully man. But he also must be truly and fully God. Again, we go to the Heidelberg Catechism. So, why must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. In other words, as truly God, Jesus can take on himself all of God's wrath. Friends, we can't bear our own wrath. Jesus takes all the wrath for all who would believe. Only God can do that. And because of his righteousness, as God, he can impute to us, credit to us, give us his right standing with God and restore us to the life that we are meant to have with God. Now, I, I realize this might be a little technical, but, but why should any of this matter to us? Why, why, is this, why am I making such a big deal about this? Why is the writer making a big deal? Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. If someone is dead, what can they do? Nothing. If someone is spiritually dead, what can they do to become spiritually alive? Nothing. Apart from Jesus, he says we can do nothing. But Jesus has done it all. He's done all that we need that we might know forgiveness and righteousness and life. And so when we remember this truth that we often say, right, Jesus is fully God, Jesus is fully man, we hear that over and over again in this church. When we remember this repeated phrase, my concern is that it would continuously have a right effect on us, that it would so humble and move us to worship him, that we might remember our sin. We don't have to live in the guilt of our sin, but, but when we remember what we've been taken from and what we've been taken to 
and that God has done it all, friends, that should move us to worship, not just on Sunday mornings, right? Every day. It's something that you can remind yourself and talk to God about every day. That Heidelberg Catechism, that's part of a, a devotional that I have, and the devotional actually reads through a historic creed every day. And so I'm reminding myself as I go through that, oh no, this is what I believe. This is what we have to stand firm in. This is the truth that my soul needs. And friends, we can get bombarded with all kinds of things in life, right? And our eyes can be easily distracted from the things of God, the things that matter most. But when we keep this mind-blowing truth that Jesus is God in human flesh and that he did so in order to rescue us from our helpless position before God, I pray and I hope you pray that it would move you to rejoice in humble worship day by day. That is our soul's greatest need, that we would know, love, serve, and worship Jesus. That's the fuel we need to live for him and to remain steadfast in him. So Jesus, the Son of God, in human flesh, became a man to die in order to ultimately deal with our problem of sin. We see he, how he does that in three ways in our passage. First of all, again, verse 14, by his death, Jesus destroys the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, you might think to yourself, uh, just a second, Satan is destroyed? Really? I, I mean, I, I face temptation all the time. And the Apostle Peter says that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So what is all this business about destroying him? Now, we need to understand that when Jesus says that Jesus destroyed the devil, it doesn't mean that he completely eliminated him. Although the Greek word for destroy here can mean obliterate, it actually typically refers to nullifying or depriving of power. That's how Jesus' death destroys the devil. But then we might ask, okay, well, but how is it that Satan has this power of death? I mean, Revelation 1.18 says that Jesus holds the keys to death. That means that he has authority and power over death. That's clear. And Scripture is also clear that God has ultimate power over all things, including Satan. And so... We conclude that any power Satan has over death is only a delegated power. You may remember the book of Job when Satan uh, accuses Job to God. He's like, he, he's just your friend because you do nice stuff for him. You, know, you keep him safe. You give him lots of stuff. That's why Job is your friend, God. And so God gives Satan permission to afflict Job in horrendous ways, right? But Satan could do nothing without God's permission. Nothing. Satan is on a leash. We need to remember that. Now, we don't want to minimize his schemes or his power to tempt us. In fact, God even uses that, just like God used Satan in Job's life, right? We don't want to minimize his power to tempt us or his schemes. We read in James 4, 7, tells us to resist the devil. 
Ephesians 6, 11, put on the full armor of God that you might stand against the devil. And yet we have to remember he has no ultimate power over any child of God. That's what the writer is getting at here. The only reason Satan has this delegated power over death is because of sin. On our own part, apart from Jesus, Satan can keep us in sin and keep us under God's wrath, accusing us as lawbreakers before God. But the death of Jesus cancels the guilt of sin for all who would believe. Satan can no longer accuse us of any unforgiven sins. Friends, if you are in Jesus, even though you may struggle with sin, if you are truly in Jesus, if you know that your sin is your greatest problem and it has separated you from the life of God and that Jesus' death on the cross is what you need to forgive your sins and, and his righteous life to make you right with God. You know you need that. Your guilt is gone. It's gone. Nothing that Satan can hold over you. In that sense, the power of death, the one with the power of death is destroyed. So let that be an encouragement, friends. He is a defeated foe. He can tempt and he can roar, but he can do nothing to ultimately destroy you. And you can stand against him in the power of Jesus. So Jesus nullifies the delegated authority that Satan has over our sin. A second way the death of Christ deals with our sin problem is delivering us from slavery to the fear of death. He delivers us from slavery to the fear of death. We see this in verse 15. I remember when I was a young boy, a relative of mine who I thought was very cool and wise uh, said to me, there's only two things we have to do in life. Die and pay taxes, right? I, I was kind of impressed with that. I was like, yeah, that, that, yeah, that's right. And then I got a little older. And I was like, no, there's all kinds of things we have to do. That doesn't count. But the fact remains is we will all die one day. All of us. Some people can't even bring themselves to talk about death because it is so terrifying to them. It's understandable. Others know that death is going to happen, but they choose to live in ignorant bliss. I remember uh, just after high school, I was driving with a friend of mine whose car had been making some strange noises. And I was like, oh, what's that noise you got going on in your car? And she was like, oh, yeah. When that happens, I just turn the radio up louder. <laughs> I've done it, I have to admit. <laughs> but she was dealing with this strange noise by distracting herself with something louder or something entertaining. I think that's what the writer means here, saying that people are living in slavery to the fear of death. Listen to what John Piper says in this regard. It means, yeah, we go. It means that they are enslaved by the fear of death to find ways not to feel the intolerable fear that they have. That is, fear of dying is so natural for sinful people who are not ready to meet God, there's the key, that it rules them like a silent master who takes many forms. The main form is the dream world of denial, like my friend in the car. 
Some people simply do not let themselves think about what is absolutely in inevitable, namely their own death. They are driven, consciously or unconsciously, to shut their eyes and close their ears and blank their minds to every thought that they are going to die and give an account to God. Friends, we can ignore that God is there. And we can pretend that death isn't going to happen. But God's word says we all, Every one of us has a knowledge of God. Even if it is ignored, even if we try to suppress it, we all know that he's there. All we have to do is look at the creation. Scripture tells us we look at the power and the works of God. We know he's there. And we also know that death is coming. For the non-Christian, for those who have not fully submitted themselves to Jesus, and, and, and if you're here this morning, and you know about Jesus, and you might even say you believe Jesus, but you haven't truly entrusted yourself to his death on the cross for your sins. You haven't truly said, I need only what you have. I can't trust in my own power to be good. I have to trust in what, if you haven't come to that place, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, I am this glorious one. I am the son of God. I am the savior who's come to take away the sins of the world. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And that's rotten news, right? But Jesus never leaves us with just the bad news. We also read in John 1, to all who did receive him, embrace him, entrust themselves to him. He gives the right to become children of God. If you're here this morning, friends, please do not, please do not let this moment pass you by if you have not come to Jesus. Entrust yourself to him and he will make you a child of God. Forever, you will be his. And for the Christian who has entrusted themselves to Jesus, the fear of death is removed. We no longer to be enslaved to that fear. Now, we might be afraid of the process of dying. I mean, ah, I don't like to think about lying in a hospital bed, slowly decaying and fading away. Who knows what kind of, I don't like the idea of it. But when we remember the one who died on our behalf, De death no longer has to be a cause for fear. You know what Jesus says, in fact? He says this in John uh, 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Death is ultimate separation from God. That's what that's about. And so if we die physically... Even if we're in Jesus, we're going to live in the presence of God forever. I mean, like, when are you going to know that you're dead? <laughs> okay, my eyes are closed and I can't open them. I think my heart's going to stop in a second. Yep, brain function is ending. I'm dead. No, nobody's going to be like that. The moment, the absolute moment you die physically, you live forever forevermore in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's amazing news. 
Third, Jesus ultimately deals with our sin by becoming our great high priest. Verse 17, therefore to be, uh, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What does a high priest do? The high priest represents God's people to God. He does that by praying and interceding for them. He does that by offering sacrifices to God for their sin. But to rightly represent them, he must be just like them. He must be a man. That's what we've been talking about. And and what kind of high priest does he say he is? It says he is merciful. How how do we define mercy? Oftentimes we, we hear Uh, This kind of well-known definition of grace and mercy, right? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Those are pretty good. They're helpful reminders. But but I think perhaps a, a better, more biblical definition of mercy would be seeing someone in need and doing something to relieve them from their suffering. Mercy is compassion in action. And in an ultimate sense, there is no greater suffering than the suffering that comes from sin. We suffer in all kinds of ways here. But if our sin isn't dealt with, we will suffer eternally away from the presence of the Lord. And as our merciful high priest, he doesn't just look at the mess of our lives or our struggle with sin and say, oh, you know what, that's really lousy. I'm feeling really bad for them. Jesus doesn't do that. Since he's our merciful high priest, he looks to relieve the consequences of our sin. Whether it's our own sin or the sins that have been committed against us. Listen, friends, uh, when we're struggling with sin, Jesus doesn't pull away from us. In the book Gentle and Lowly, the author says, you know, when, when we're struggling with sin, Jesus doesn't kind of step back and be like, oh, you stink. No, he doesn't pull back. Um, He leans in. And he comes alongside to help us with the things that we struggle with the most. He's merciful. He wants to relieve us of that struggle. The passage also tells us that he is a faithful high priest. Faithful simply means that he's dependent. And tr- dependable and trustworthy to fulfill his work to rescue us from our sin. And, you know, that's obviously in an ultimate sense. When Jesus died to pay for our sins, our trust in him, he will bring us into eternity. And if he's willing to do that, then we can also fully trust him with whatever difficulty, struggle, pain we go through. Back in July, I had a two-week vacation. It was a staycation uh, because I wanted to paint our, um, our bedroom upstairs. It's the entire second floor of our house, so it's kind of big. But um, that was the worst vacation I ever had. <laughs> the worst. That's the worst, right? The first day, I made a really dumb mistake, and I felt humiliated. That same day, I locked my keys in my car. The next day, I lost my wallet. A couple of, <laughs> Sam's like, oh, I'm so sorry. 
a couple days later, we had some, some serious family issues coming up that were really, really hard. And so was Jesus merciful and faithful when all that was going on? I mean, it felt like I, I was drowning. And at one point, I knew I had to get away, and I, I drove to the beach, and I, I read just providentially. I was in some, some devotional in Psalm 77, and, and the author is talking about how bad things are. And he says, but then I remember your works from a mold. And I started thinking, oh, look at my life when I was first young. There, there are so many things that happened that were not good. But you know what? God brought me to a place where I knew I needed him. And then I became a Christian. And then after that, things were not always so good because I needed to grow and develop character and, and grow in my dependence upon God. And then I grew and I became a pastor and I had to deal with all kinds of things that I don't know how to deal with, right? But God helps me and carries me through. So as I was doing that, remembering all that God had done, it was like, the t this is the truth. The tension melted away. And what was at first the worst vacation became a great vacation because God was merciful and faithful to me. Faithful to let me go through all that to see, oh no, you're still, you're still struggling with these sins. Oh no, you still need to depend on me. Oh no, you still got pride issues. He was faithful. He's still working on me. And I don't want to have to go through those hard things but he's merciful and faithful in them. This verse also says that he is a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God. So not only is he helping us, he's doing some service to God. What is that? It is to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is just a big Bible word that simply means to appease or take away the wrath of God towards sin. We have to remember God is holy. And he will rightly bring his judgment on all sin and all sinners. So to make propitiation, the high priest must offer a sacrifice, right? Remember, that's what we, we saw happening in the Old Testament. The, the, the priest would, would bring the sacrifice into the temple. He would put his hands on the head of the animal to say that the sins of the person is being transferred onto the animal, and then killed, covering sin for those who bring the sacrifice. Jesus not only offers the sacrifice, friends, he is the sacrifice because the blood of lambs and goats cannot take away sin. Only the precious blood of the eternal Son of God become man can take away the sins of all who would believe. It's only the death of Jesus that can take away God's wrath and forgive us of all of our sin and shame. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's Jesus' service to God. He is a merciful and faithful high priest. So the Son of God became a man to die to deal with our sin. First of all, just a little recap here. First of all, by this destroying the one who has the power of death. Second, to deliver us from the slavery to fear of death. Lastly, as our high priest, to remove God's wrath for us through his death. 
Our second major point, the Son of God became a man and died in order to be a present and powerful help with our ongoing struggle with sin. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What do we see here? Jesus' absolute solidarity with us as a man who suffered temptation, yet without sin, he did that in order to help us. When I was reflecting on this verse last week, I I was kind of overwhelmed thinking about this. And and I began praying to Jesus and I said, is it possible that you were really tempted as I am? Tempted to envy and covet? Tempted to pride? Tempted to gossip and be judgmental? Tempted to lust and to lie? Really? Tempted to be overly concerned about what people think, tempted to worry and ask the why questions. Can it really be, Jesus, you were tempted in those ways and more? Now, we kind of have to admit that it's true that he was really tempted in that way because the Word of God tells us, but we might think, okay, okay, so he was tempted, but Jesus never gave in, right? So how can he really know what we go through? It's true. Jesus didn't give in to sin, but he, but he also did something that we've never done. He experienced the full force of temptation in a way that you and I never have. C.S. Lewis talks about a man walking in a hurricane, trying to walk against the full force of the wind. At, at some point, he cannot take it anymore, and he has to lie down and give in to it. Jesus never laid down. He felt the full force of temptation in order that he might identify with us in our temptation to sin. But you might also think, yeah, but he was God, right? Like he had a power greater than I do. We we really have to remember something really important here with Jesus being a man. When Jesus experienced temptation, He experienced it and he resisted it in the power of the Spirit of God. Guess what? If you're in Jesus, that power is available to you. So when it says he suffered because he suffered when tempted, he's able to help, it means that Jesus is interceding for you. And he makes the power of his Spirit available to you. That's why he's able to help you when you're tempted. Now, now what, what might that look like? What what could that look like? When you're facing temptation, or when I'm I'm talking with people who are are facing temptation, I'm like, you need a plan. You You need a strategy. You need some kind of a plan in place, in mind, so that when the temptation comes, you know what you got to do to deal with it, right? So I sometimes speak of this as the prayer of faith. It's just saying, just being open and honest with Jesus. Jesus, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm feeling. This is the temptation that is assaulting me right now. And I don't know what to do about it. But your word says this. That's where the faith comes in. Because your word says this. I need your grace to believe it. That's what faith is, right? Believing what God has said, but then doing something about it. So what you say, give me grace to believe it. And then give me your power to take a step to turn from it, 
Friends, we all have that power. It's not you just being strong. It's you saying, I can't do this without you, Jesus. I need you to step in, and I believe what you said, so give me the grace to believe it and live it out. And when you're doing this, when, you're, when, you're, when you got this plan going on, you know what I, I tell my kids? I'm like, you, gotta, you need a plan, but the plan always leads to a person. The plan must lead you to Jesus. So as you're looking at the word, you talk, don't just talk about the word. Talk to Jesus about the word. When you're struggling with something, don't just talk to others. That's good. It's really helpful. But talk to Jesus about what you're going through. And bring him in. He, 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 he recreated us to have a genuine relationship with us. So don't just talk about Jesus. Talk to Jesus about what you're going through. He became a man so we can know with confidence that when we're facing temptation, he's not far away. He's not far away, right? He comes right alongside us. He says, I've been through it. I've been through it. I know, I know what you're going through. Look to me now. Talk to me now. Let's talk. And I give you the power of my spirit. I'm praying for you, and I'll help you. As we wrap, oh, what time is it? Am I doing okay on time? Yeah? All right. So as we wrap up, I want to mention just two other implications here. One is regarding fellow believers, and one is regarding those who are still without Jesus. As you reflect on the truths from this passage, remember uh, that there are brothers and sisters in Jesus who struggle just like you do, and who may need help to hold on to these truths as well. I remember an old pastor friend of mine saying, if the silent thoughts of our hearts could speak right now, there'd be a roar in this place. The hurt, the pain, the disappointment, the struggle with sin, the struggle with relationships, whatever it might be, a roar would rise from this place. There are people seated right around you who need your prayers. There are people in your small groups that need your encouragement. That's where the, the Hebrew believers were. That's what the writer was reminding them of. Sometimes we just need a little help from our brothers and sisters to point us back to what our souls need most. And in fact, God has given us our brothers and sisters in Christ right here in this church for that very reason. So be in people's lives. It doesn't mean you have to be like a Budinsky. You know, you don't want to be annoying. But get to know people. Be, live in community. We have these small groups. We talk about them all the time. If you're not part of one, I urge you to be a part of one of those groups. They have... I, I've spent a couple decades with the same group of people. Do you know what's happened? Those people know me. Those people love me. And those people are committed to me. We've been through difficulties. There have been tensions. And because we've been committed to Jesus and to one another, we have grown and strengthened in character and in faith together. Be a part of people's lives. So that's regarding fellow believers. Secondly, regarding unbelievers. As you look at the world, like my, my friend that I told you about earlier, and you see all kinds of 
evil and nonsense happening. Remember, that's what God rescued you from. You might look a little bit better on the outside. That's what God rescued you and me from. And so if you've got people in your life like that or even people you don't know, people who are living out those evils, remember that there is a hope for them. Only one, only one hope. You have hope to give. And his name is Jesus. Son of God became a man in order to die and ultimately deal with those annoying and miserable sins. We can lament what's happening in the world. That's understandable. But let's not stop there. Let's pray. And let's point to Jesus with our words and lives. It's not always going to be easy. You know that. Some people will disdain you for what you believe, and they might label you all kinds of things. But there will be some who God will call to himself through your witness. So let's be ready to exalt this wonderful Jesus who is far greater than anyone or anything who alone can ultimately deal with our sin and who is powerful to help us in our sin. Amen? Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. May our hearts grow ever more aware of who he is, what he's like, what he's done, and all that he promises to be for us. We need him. You, you know we need him above all. May we seek him and your power day by day. For he is our greatest need because he is the majestic and exalted God the Son. We pray in his name. Amen.